0: we'd like for you to join us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The title of our message is, Looking to the End Time, but Living in the Meantime. A few years ago, I read a fascinating biography about Ronald Reagan, the 40th President of the United States. And one thing that I learned about Reagan is that he suffered from terrible eyesight. In fact, his myopic vision was so bad that he was rejected from service during World War II. And during his days in Hollywood, Reagan could be seen on set wearing glasses in between takes and then uh, he would remove them for the cameras to roll. And during his life, as he pursued politics, he was prescribed contact lenses But even then, his contacts posed problems. You see, while he was able to see the audience during a speech, he said that he could not read the notes on his podium as well uh, without contacts. And so, the great communicator, as he was called, engineered a solution. Before a speech, Reagan would take out one contact, and that way he would be long-sighted in one eye and he could see the crowd. And then he could have the benefit of looking with that uncontacted eye to see his notes. And I thought, wow, what an interesting tidbit about the life of a great president. And then I read Philip de Courcy. He makes a great practical application from that story. Listen to what Philip de Courcy wrote in one of his books. He said, quote, There's a good lesson to be learned from the practice of Ronald Reagan. In looking at the world and the emerging events of our day, the Christian must take a near and a far look. We must simultaneously live with a view to the meantime and the end times. We must look around making note of the present times and seasons, but also ahead to our coming King. Now, the recent world upheaval caused by the COVID-19 outbreak has gotten many in our world wondering uh, what time are we living in? As countries uh, stay in lockdown, as economies suffer, and as panic has gripped the hearts of so many, for those who are uninformed, uh, this may have felt like the end of the world for so many. But of course, it's God's people, we know better. We have His prophetic Word, which gives us insight into the present and foresight into the future. And if you know about Bible prophecy, it gives you perspective, and then it also gives you peace. I like what Billy Graham wrote in one of his last books before he went on to be with the Lord. He said this, Quote, What a time to take the news of the day in one hand and the Bible in the other, and watch the unfolding of this great drama come together. He said, this is an exciting and thrilling time to be alive. God's prophetic truth is being fulfilled before our eyes. The world, he said, is on a collision course. It's not a question of what is this world coming to, but who is coming to this world. Now here in 1 Thessalonians 5, As we read today, we're going to notice that Paul writes about being a people of double vision. Just like I mentioned with President Reagan there, with a natural eye, we look around and we observe current events. And then through the eye of faith, we look ahead far down into the tunnels of time, maybe not as far as we might think though, to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're looking around Uh, At the meantime, but we're looking ahead also to the end time. Now in this message, we're going to do that very thing. Because we as uh, God's people need to be reminded of the blessed hope that we have in the return of Jesus Christ. Because if there's anything that uh, this pandemic has reminded us of, is that this world isn't getting any better. Uh, this world isn't my home. I wasn't destined to live and stay here forever. I have a Savior. I have a heavenly home. And I'm looking forward to going there one day. And so I also want to look uh, across our news headlines and I want to show you several things that, about this crisis that will reveal some stage setting taking place in our day as we draw nigh to the return of Jesus. So what are we to do? Well, number one, we are to look for His coming. Look for His coming. Notice verse 1, chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now as we open that passage, we see that Paul uses a term there that we need to know something about. He uses the phrase, day of the Lord, to refer to the coming of Christ. Now if you study the Bible... That phrase is used a total of 20 times, 16 in the Old Testament, 4 in the New. And broadly speaking, when you see that term, Day of the Lord, it refers to all prophetic events that begin with the rapture of the church, go through the tribulation period of seven years, and into the millennial 1,000 year reign of Christ. I like the way that prophetic scholar Mark Hitchcock has defined this. Look at what he says The quote's on your screen. He said, The day of the Lord is a period of time that will begin with a seven-year tribulation, which we could call the judgment phase, and will continue throughout the entire 1,000-year reign of Christ and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, which we would call the blessing phase. He says, Much like a 24-hour day, the day of the Lord will begin with a dark night of tribulation continuing with the dawn bursting forth when Christ returns and the world will bask in the full sun and daylight during His kingdom reign. And so you will see a chart coming up on your screen at home of a prophetic timeline. And you'll notice that in the beginning right there, we are in the church age, the age of grace. And then the next event up on our prophetic timeline is the rapture of the church Then we see a seven-year tribulation period that's talked about in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And then at the end of that, we have the return of Christ. We have the thousand-year millennial reign and then eternity future. And so you'll see marked there the day of the Lord. That includes the rapture, the tribulation period, and the millennial reign of Christ. And Paul is writing here, and he wants his friends to know that, hey, there's a new day coming, and it will begin with the dawn of the S-O-N. Now, there's a few things that he points out here about the day of the Lord that we must learn in this passage. The first part of this that we see is it's a sure day. A sure day. Look at what verse 2 says there. He says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So it's a sure day. Now, the Bible refers to the second coming of Christ far more than it does His first coming. In fact, by a factor of eight to one. In fact, listen to this. Scholars have identified an astounding 1,845 prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ. In the Old Testament, Christ's return is talked about in 17 books. In the New Testament, 23 of the 27 books. books—a Seven out of ten chapters in the New Testament mentions His return. And so what that means is that second only to the doctrine of salvation is this blessed hope of the coming of our Lord Jesus as it is taught there in the New Testament. I was thinking back about the dark days of World War II. And on April 9th, 1942, the United States had to surrender ground in the Philippines. They had to hand over 75,000 American troops as the Japanese army advanced there. And a few weeks before that surrender, President Franklin Roosevelt, knowing what was coming, ordered General Douglas MacArthur to leave his stronghold in Corregidor. And they say that as the general sailed away, from that great surrender that he looked back and he promised all of his men there left on that island. He said, I shall return. And indeed, MacArthur did return two and a half years later on October 20th, 1944, with his telltale iconic... Corn cob pipe shoved in his mouth, and he came back. And friend, what I want you to see is, if a mortal man like MacArthur can keep a promise, how much more can we be assured that Jesus, the sinless the Son of Man, will keep His Word and return? You see, He's coming back to take a church up and to take the church out, and He's coming back to finish the fight. Uh, Friend, if all of the first prophecies of Jesus' coming were literally fulfilled, uh, then we know that all the prophecies concerning His second coming are going to be literally fulfilled. Uh, He's going to come physically. He's going to come powerfully. He's going to come surprisingly. And when He comes again, He will come permanently Uh, What did He say in John 14? He said, Do not be troubled, for where I am going to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, you may be also, friend, that's a guarantee, Uh, that's a promise, that's a sure day that Jesus has said is coming. The day of the Lord. It's a sure day. Then I also want you to see number two, that it is a sudden day. Paul uses these analogies. He said, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then verse 3, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. So Paul uses a couple of familiar analogies here from our world to help us understand the surprising nature of Christ's return. First, he uses that of a thief. Now, a thief doesn't give you an announcement. They don't give you an advance warning that they're coming to rob you blind. And so, just like that, the day of the Lord, He says it's going to come secretly. It's going to come with no alarms or no signs attached to it. In fact, What's interesting is the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And as I understand the Bible, there's no need for anything else to be fulfilled. It could be today. It could be in the middle of this sermon. It could be this afternoon or tomorrow. Uh, we just need to live as if Christ died yesterday, or was buried this morning, and is coming back later on this evening. So he uses that analogy of A thief in the night. Then you also notice the pregnancy of this woman that is pictured here. Just as a pregnant woman can be feeling great one moment and then be in the throes of agony and sweat and screaming and pushing, (laughs) so too, he says, the day of the Lord will come like that. I remember last year on the day, that our last child, Lydia, was born. It was a Sunday morning. And we woke up, and Caitlin said, uh, I'm feeling a little bit odd today. She said, I'm going to stay home, but I think today's going to be the day. And I said, well, I'll go to church. And she said, yeah, go ahead. And so I came, and I preached, and I left her in the bathtub. And I came home, and she was still in the bathtub. And I said, how close are we? And she said, uh, She said, it's going to be today. I said, do I have time to eat lunch? (laughs) And so me and Brother Michael, uh, we went and got a plate of hot wings, or at least I ate wings because, hey, you don't want to have a baby on an empty stomach, right? So we went and we ate and we come back home and I checked in with her. And when I came and saw her, she looked at me and she said, it is time to go. And when we got to the hospital, she was already about eight centimeters They put us in a room for about 30 minutes, and by the time we got into that delivery room, brother, it was time to start pushing. What I want you to see is that the day before that, she was fine as she was healthy, as she was calm and collected, but all oh, things changed just like that in a few hours. And brother, there was shouting, and there was screaming, and there was pushing and sweating as that baby was delivered. And the Bible is saying, this is a picture of the frequency and intensity with which the day of the Lord will befall this earth. And you know, God's judgment is always sudden and severe when it happens. Think about it. Jesus pointed to a couple of examples. He pointed to Matthew 24 to Noah. Uh, One day, it was fun and games. It was marrying and giving in marriage and business as usual in the day of Noah. And then God shut him up in the ark and the Bible says the rain started to fall. And don't you know that on the day the floodwaters rise? Oh, friend, it was too late. It was sudden. As the deluge came, they were probably outside beating on the door of the ark. Noah, let us in. Noah, we believe you now. And then Jesus pointed to Lot and Sodom in Luke 17. Just as it was a party every night, high life living in Sodom one day, Then the very next day, the fire and brimstone started to fall from the sky. Then in Daniel's day, you think about Belshazzar's drunken feast as he thumbed his nose in the eye of God, as he spat in God's face and and made fun of the sacred vessels and of Daniel's God, oh, there came that handwriting on the wall. Mene, mine tekel parsin, awaited, waited, and found wanting. And by then, as the king's knees were smote, and once again the other, the Bible says it was too late. Judgment was already there at the door. And so it's a sudden day. Adrian Rogers said it like this. Look at this quote. He said, even now, the raging waters of God's wrath are furiously pounding against the dam of His mercy. But one of these days, without alarm bells or warning, that dam of God's mercy will give way to God's judgment and the day of the Lord will come. Friend, I want to know today, it's a sure day and a sudden day. Are you ready to meet the Lord? We also see something else here in our text. It's going to be a solemn day. A solemn day. Notice verse 2 and 3 one more time. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. While people are saying, Peace and security. Watch this. Then sudden destruction will come. And then in verse 3 it says, And they will not escape. Last year we did a study verse by verse on Sunday morning through the book of Revelation. What we learn very simply through that passage and through that study is that you don't want to be here on the earth when the seals and the trumpets and the bold judgments are being let loose here on earth. You know, the Bible predicts that during that tribulation period it's going to be a series of 21 separate judgments befalling the earth, each one worse than the last And just in case we think that this recent pandemic was bad, and I'm not diminishing that, but friend, it's nothing compared to the pestilence and the plagues that are coming to this earth one day. Notice this, the fourth seal judgment of Revelation 6-8. The Bible says that when that fourth seal is opened, that it releases the fourth horseman to ride across the earth. Here's what the text says, And behold, I looked, a pale horse... And its writer's name was Death. And Hades followed after him. And they were given authority, watch this, over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine, watch this, and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Do you know if that seal were to be opened and that judgment were to be carried out today, a fourth of the world's population wiped out. You know what that number is? 1.9 billion people would die. And friend, that's just one judgment out of the book of Revelation. And notice there's an interesting connection here. The Bible says that that will happen with wild beasts of the earth. Now, what do we know about our recent pandemic is that they tell us that it was transmitted from a bat to a human, from a beast of the earth. And it could be that when God unleashes this fourth seal, that it will be a similar virus that's beginning in an animal and transmutes over to a human. In fact, that's what led to the worst plague of all time, the bubonic plague in the 1300s that wiped out about a third or more of Europe. Now, as I look at this text and I think about a solemn day and a sudden day and a sure day, I'm reminded, remember when you were in school? Remember when you were in the teacher's classroom and the teacher said, as Students, I've got to go out in the hall and carry on some business. And as the teacher went outside, oh, it was fun and games while the teacher was gone. I know because I was there, there was paper airplanes being sailed across the room. Uh, There was notes being passed. There was spit wads being shot across the room. Uh, There was, hey, what did you get for number three? Is it C or is it B? And there was all kinds of activity and fun and games when the teacher was out. But when the teacher came back in the room, (laughs) oh, there was judgment. That's when kids really started to get in trouble and friend, uh, just like that uh, the master is away, but I'm telling you, uh, he's coming back and when uh, he returns to the scene, uh, heads are going to roll he won't be the gentle lamb Uh, he'll be the lion, he will come to judge sin and to punish his enemies and to balance the scales of justice and fulfill his prophetic word and to rule with power and authority, friend uh, you'll want to meet him on this side of the divide, Uh, make sure he He's your Savior. Make sure you know about His mercy and His grace. Because today, He's the gentle Savior. But on that day, I'm telling you, uh, He'll be the judge of the quick and the dead. And there won't be any mercy that can be had then. So, uh, let today uh, be the day of salvation. Find grace while it's still available. Uh, Listen, sinner, if you don't know Jesus Christ in a real and personal way, I implore you, get down on your knees where you are and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. Uh, You want to know Him today. Uh, Stop putting it off. Uh, Stop making excuses. Hey, it's time to be saved today. A solemn day. And a sudden day. And a sure day. We're to look for His coming. Praise God, I'm about to lose my voice. Number two, we need to live for His coming. Look for His coming. And live for his coming. Now Paul gives the Thessalonian believers two actions in light of the return of Jesus. The first one is this. He says, "Wake up. Wake up. Look at what he says in verse seven or verse four, "But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness." So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us, here it is, keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. You know, one of the buzzwords that you hear about today in our culture is is being woke. You ever hear that? Uh, I'm woke. That means I'm with it politically and I'm an activist and I know what's going on and I'm sensitive to other people who haven't had the same advantages as I have. Well, Paul was woke, brother, but in another way, he in fact had all those keyboard warriors beat by about 2,000 years because he says here, hey, to live in light of Jesus Christ coming, it's time to wake up. Be alert. Be watchful. Be aware of what's going on in our world. Don't be a slumbering saint, in other words. Think about what happened. Peter slept when he should have been watching and praying, and what happened? He denied the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple weeks ago, we looked at old Eutychus. Uh, He fell asleep, and he had a long fall out of a third-story window. I like what Vance Habner said years ago. He said this, Far too many preachers today are playing a lullaby when they need to be sounding an alarm. The result is slumbering saints who come to church wearing a do not disturb sign. Let me tell you, if there was ever a time when the church was asleep It would be in this day and in this hour uh, because uh, we've made ourselves non-essential in so many ways because we said, oh, we're not going to take a stance on sin. Uh, We'll allow abortion and and we'll allow gay marriage and we'll compromise with the culture and we'll tell people it really isn't a big deal for you to come to church anyway. And when you do come, uh, you don't really have to make much of an effort. Uh, We have taken church, friend, In this day, and we put people to sleep. Uh, There's a lot of pastors asleep behind the pulpit. Uh, They won't preach about sin. And and they won't preach about judgment. and, And they won't preach about the second and the soon recoming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the day has come where the church needs to stand up, shake off the grave clothes, and wake up! Because we need to realize the day in which we live. There's been some wake up signs in our society recently, for instance, church closings. How many of us didn't take church real seriously before about March the 15th? And we thought to ourselves, well, church, it'll always be there. It's a given. And I'll go when it's convenient, when it fits with my schedule. When I feel good and all of that. And friend, now we're living in a day where people desire and want to go to church and yet the churches are closed because of the pandemic. Hey, we need to wake up as God's people and realize uh, this is a gift. uh, uh, This is a privilege. This is an honor to be able to come into the house of God and to hear the Word of God and to hear the choir sing with the touch of God on it and realize, hey, I need to take this more seriously. I need to realize the value of the precious treasure in the local church. And I need to pray and support my pastor and get busy winning souls and winning my community because the day is coming soon and very soon during the day of the Lord when the church won't be open because the true church will be out of this world. We're getting a little glimpse of what that's like right now. Oh, friend, wake up calls. There's more than just that. Preston's going to show you some slides coming up on your screen. Watch this. In October 2019, less than two months before this virus surfaced, did you know that there was a meeting that took place in New York City? It was called Event 201, a global pandemic exercise. That's the name of it. The purpose of the meeting was to strategize a response to a global pandemic all the way from the medicine down to the media narrative. Who was there? Listen, the UN, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, NBC, the CIA, John Hopkins School of Medicine, and the Chinese CDC. They all got together and they basically war-gamed this whole thing out that we're living in right now. And you can look at that and say, well, that's just a coincidence. I refuse to believe that. That was just a coincidence. What all those organizations have in common, they're all globalists. In other words, one world government. Here's something else. Business Insider. This article was published a few days ago, they reported that Apple and Google will partner with a new technology to create a digital contact tracing system powered by a network of smartphones that will make it so that your device can notify you if you have recently been in contact with somebody potentially containing or contagious with the COVID-19 virus. They say that the companies have created this with your privacy... In mind, Does that sound Big Brother-ish to you? Maybe just in the slightest way? Right, there's one more. Soon after Easter 2020, Pope Francis, by the way, he doesn't speak for me, Pope Francis released a letter supporting basic universal income. UBI, Universal Basic Income. It's the socialist dream that everyone on earth should receive a free basic income package. Free money, free checks, wealth redistribution, the whole nine yards. UBI, listen to who supports it. The International Monetary Fund, Elon Musk, head of SpaceX and Tesla. Mark Zuckerberg, thank you for allowing us to use this platform to declare the gospel, but I don't agree with your theology, sir. And Democrat Bernie Sanders. You say, what does all that mean, preacher? Well, take back a step and look. What does the Bible say is coming to this earth? Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 17. The Bible says one day there's coming a one world government. That an antichrist is going to rule over it. Uh, that a mark of the beast is coming and that in order to participate in that economy, you'll have to have that mark. And friend, as I look back at all this and I see these pieces coming together, I'm just reminded that God is working and God is allowing it to happen because it's setting the stage for the final act of God's divine drama to begin. I'm not worried about it. I'm not anxious about it. I can't do anything to stop it. All I can do is look back and say, "Uh, you were right about that, God. Uh, Your word said that many hundreds of years ago. And we've wondered how could one man take over the world. Now I understand it with a crisis. uh, People will willingly give up Uh, their freedoms and give up their economy for a little bit of quote-unquote safety. And I look back and I say, hey, things aren't falling apart. Bless God, things are falling right into place just as God said it would. And it's an exciting time because you can look and see Bible prophecy being fulfilled right now. Wake up. Then he says this, dress up. Verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Paul says, look, this world in the playground, this world's a battleground. Don't go into this fight unprepared. He says make sure you're dressed up spiritually speaking and you are ready for the conflict that's going to be coming your way. So we see here the breastplate. Well, what does that do? That protects the heart. The heart is the seat of our emotions and our affections. Then He says put on the helmet. And the helmet, what does that do? Well, that protects our head. And spiritually speaking, we would say that protects our mind against the lies and the deception of the adversary. And so notice the triad here that's also mentioned. We see in this text faith and hope and love. And he says, clothe yourselves in this attire. By faith, trust the promises of Christ, and we act on His Word. Love reminds us of our passion for Christ and how our love for Him will protect us from temptation, And it will help us to be obedient to the things that He's asked us to do. We'll get victory over the enemy. And then hope, well that points forward to the person of Jesus as we look to the day when He appears and He takes us home. In one of his books, Charles Swindoll, he tells this great story about as a young man, he worked in a metal shop. And he said that he worked with a fella who was a maintenance man in that old grimy shop. His name was George. And he said, oftentimes, he said, George would be covered in head to toe with dirt and grease. I mean, he was just uh, one of these maintenance guys. And he lived in the the grease and he lived in the dirt. And and that was how he made his living. Well, one Friday afternoon, uh, Charles Swindoll said that he saw George pushing a broom. And he said to him, he said, uh, Hey, man, you better get ready. The quitting bell's about to ring and you're going to be ready to get out of here and go enjoy the weekend. And he said that George turned to him and he said, I'm already ready. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, George laid down his broom and he unzipped... This pair of coveralls that he was working in. And he stepped out of his coveralls and he had sparkling, clean clothes. And he turned to Charles and he said this. He said, You see, brother Charles, he says, I stays ready all the time to keeps from getting ready, just like I'm ready for the trumpet to blow and for Jesus Christ to come back one day. And that's what Paul is saying to us. He says, make sure you woke up. Make sure you're dressed up to keep from having to get ready. Make sure your life is like it needs to be so that when He comes, uh, you'll be ready. You won't be caught by surprise. You won't be living in an ashamed way or living in sin. And you'll say, Blessed come, Lord Jesus. I'm ready to go up, up, and away and meet you there when He shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in Him be found, in Him my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. He says, look for His coming. He says also in this, to live for His coming. And then I want you to see as we close today, long for His coming. Long for His coming. Verse 9, notice what our text says. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, these folk who Paul was writing to, these Thessalonian believers, they were living in the day of intense Roman persecution. And they thought, hey, because of the tribulation and the peril that we are living in, we've got to be in this day of the Lord. But Paul's writing them and he's saying, look, you're not there yet. It's not nearly as bad as you might think it could be. You're not in the day of the Lord yet. So... Live this way until He comes. Long for His coming. And be an encouragement to one another, by the way, he said. And one way that Paul eased their anxious minds is he said, let me remind you of one thing, church. The church is not the object of God's wrath. And so because you're not an object of God's wrath, you can't be in the day of the Lord. Because the church has a different origin, a different purpose, and a different destiny than any other organization here on the earth. You see, one great reason why the return of Christ is a blessed hope to the redeemed is that Because I believe when Christ comes, He's going to rescue His people from this old world of death and disease and demons and disappointment. And yes, it is a blessed hope to me. And I've heard uh, respected Bible teachers and men of God who are very learned who say, oh no, I think the church better prepare to go through uh, the tribulation. And I say, what Bible are you reading, friend? That's not a blessed hope. It's a blessed hope to know that Jesus is coming on a great rescue mission. And this passage right here, 1 Thessalonians 5:9, is one that affirms, I believe, the doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture, meaning that Christ will return for his bride to take them out of the world before his wrath is poured out. Look at what he says very clearly. God has not destined us for wrath. How more clear and black and white can it be? (laughs) Paul says something similar at the beginning of this letter. Look at what he says in chapter 1 and verse 10. Wait for the Son from heaven, watch this, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You say, well, that was just something that... That was Paul's pet doctrine. No. No. Look at what Jesus said Himself in the letter to Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. This letter from Jesus to John. Verse 10, Because you have kept My word about patient endurance. Watch this. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. I will keep you. Not I will keep you through it. I will keep you from it to try those who dwell on the earth. And Paul says something here and in verse 11 and in chapter 4 at the end of the rapture passage in verse 18. He says, this is a comfort. There'd be no comfort at all if the church was not to be removed and if it had to endure the day of the Lord. The only way that this can be a comfort is if Jesus rescues us before the wrath. Listen to what David Jeremiah said on this. This is so great. He said, quote, When God put Jesus on the cross, He exacted from Him the full penalty due for our sin. We have nothing left to pay. But if we who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ are put through the tribulation, which is a punitive judgment of God, it would mean that the price Christ paid on the cross was not enough. That we still need the additional penalty of God's punitive wrath. He says this, Did the cross save us from the wrath of God or not, certainly it did. Hey, I'm longing for the coming of my Savior. And you can say what you want. You say, well, you're just a weenie. You're just an escapist. Hey, you better believe I am. I'm ready to go and see my Savior. Because, hey, I'm longing for my Savior. This world hadn't got anything to offer me. It's not my home. It's not my resting place. I'm made for a better country. I'm longing for heaven because I got friends. And praise God, I got loved ones on the other side. And I'm going to hug their neck and we're going to worship Jesus together. I'm longing for heaven because I want to see an end to sin and death, and cancer, and crime. I'm tired of doing funerals. I'm tired of going to the rest home. I'm tired of standing beside a grave and offering hope. I'm ready for an end to all of that foolishness. Uh, Hey, I'm ready. for Satan to finally get what he's got coming to him. And I want to be there when Jesus throws him into the lake of fire and I want to clap and shout and say, uh, you said it would happen and now look, devil, Hey, uh, you got what you deserve. Hey. I'm ready to see Jesus seated on a throne in power and in glory wearing a crown. I'm ready to lay down this old tent. I'm looking forward to taking up a building not made with hands, a sinless, ageless, deathless, painless body in that old resurrection form. Hey, I'm ready to dance on streets of gold. I'm ready to worship with the angels. I want to talk with the saints of God. I want to talk with Moses and Abraham and Brother Peter and Paul. And I want to say, hey, what was it like when God did thus and so in your journey? And I'm ready to move in to that heavenly mansion. Moving from 16 Pauline's Place to 777 Glory Way up there in my home. Oh, the Bible says that I has not seen nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man. The things which God hath prepared for those who love Him. Oh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I will see, when I look upon His face, the One who saved me by His grace, when He takes me by the hand and leads me through. The promised land. What a day! What a day that will be. You don't have to tell this preacher to get excited and long for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, I'm already there. And if you're beside me, Brother Stacy, when the rapture happens, I'm going to high-five you on the way up and say, I told you, Brother! I told you so! Let's go see Him. I started this sermon talking about... The need for double vision. God's people need to be able to look at the present and look ahead. There's one man who embodied that. His name was James Stockdale. Listen to this. He was an aviator during Vietnam. He went on to win the Medal of Honor. And in 1965, his aircraft was shot down over North Vietnam. Vietnam. He was captured by the Viet Cong and he spent eight grueling years in a POW camp where they abused him. They brainwashed him. Didn't feed him enough. I mean, they treated him like a dog. He was eventually released in 1973. Eight years in that hell. Jim Collins, a few years ago, he wrote a book called Good to Great. He interviewed Mr. Stockdale. And he asked him, he said, Sir... How in the world did you live through that ordeal? What was it about your spirit that got you through eight years of torture? Here's what he said. And I love this. He said, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted, not only what I get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, he said, I would not trade. And friend, that's the message today. Don't lose faith in the end of the story. God's already written it. He knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. We're in a a situation. We're in difficulty. We're in adversity. Whatever season of life God is asking you to go through, don't lose faith in the end of the story. That He'll get you out. And He'll get you through. And you will have a great time of praise. Lord, we love you today. We thank you, God, for this tremendous passage of Scripture. Oh, Lord, how it has lifted my spirits today. And Lord, how it has challenged so many out there who aren't really living like they should. Lord, I'm not special. There's nothing good in me. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Lord, there's many out there who in hearing this message, they need to do an inventory in their life. They need to say, "Am am I looking for His coming? Am I living for His coming? Am I longing for His coming? I pray God for that soul out there that's lost and undone. Lord, You can save them. Your grace is still abundant. Your mercy is still available. And so, Lord, for that person right now, I pray, God, that you touch their heart. Lord, that You'd prick their heart by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that they'd cry out to You, Lord Jesus, save me, for I'm a sinner. Lord, I thank You for these promises and how they bless the church. I pray, God, that You would encourage the saints of God with these words. And that, Lord, You would help us to live in such a way that we will not be ashamed if You were to come This very hour. But that we would be awake. We would be dressed up. We'd be ready to go. For we're either going to meet you in death. Or in your return. By the clod or by the cloud. So God help us today. To live in that kind of situation Lord. Where we're ready. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.